today on CityCast Denver. When I was growing up in Colorado, I didn't learn about the Sand Creek Massacre in school. I never knew about the soldiers who ambushed and killed hundreds of Cheyenne and Arapaho women, children, and elders on November 29, 1864. Thanks to a new exhibit opening next month at History Colorado, a lot more people are going to learn that story soon. But whose version? And who's going to be telling it? Westward editor Patty Calhoun broke a huge story about the last time History Colorado tried to open a Sand Creek Massacre exhibit in 2012. And she's on the show today to talk about the decade of soul-searching that led to the new one. And just a note, this discussion contains graphic depictions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. Today is Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Patty Calhoun, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thanks. So, Patty, History Colorado is opening this new and long-awaited exhibit about the Sand Creek Massacre next month, but... I wanted to talk to you because this is not the first time the museum has done this. And I wanted you to tell me about the Sand Creek exhibit that History Colorado opened 10 years ago. So when when History Colorado had its brand new building, you know, its new name, History Colorado, as opposed to Colorado Historical Society, and that beautiful building on Broadway designed by David Triba. And when it opened in April 2012, they had planned for a series of exhibits that would look into different cultures of Colorado, including, you know, there's one about Deerfield, which is a pretty interesting exhibit. Then they had some that were clearly designed just to disnify the experience. The tourism draw. Right. You could jump in a a mine, which was right next to a Ben's Fort exhibit that had some really bad caricatures of Native Americans. You could ride on a ski lift. So they had a variety of different activities that were supposed to bring you in. And then they had this collision, which was an exhibit designed to talk about Sand Creek. And they did want to present it as a travesty. But unfortunately, they didn't consult with the tribes the way they are supposed to, really by congressional fiat. You are supposed to talk to the tribes. And they had all these sound effects, like you could hear Indians running as the troops were coming to massacre them. And as the tribes, the descendants of the Sand Creek Massacre, learned about it, they begged History Colorado not to open the, first to make changes, but then they begged them just not even to open it. And History Colorado went ahead and opened this exhibit that was supposed to commemorate the November 1864 massacre of 200 people, but really added insult to injury by not talking to their descendants and following the storyline they wanted. I mean, there were factual errors in the thing. That's wild to me because this is like... It's history. It's history. And I have to say the tribes, they really wanted to work behind the scenes. And they started talking to me about it. And I wrote a story that following February, after it had opened, after it hadn't closed. And within about two months, they did wind up closing the exhibit. So now, almost 10 years later, History Colorado has worked and worked and worked with the tribes. There's complete buy-in on this for this exhibit that will open in November. So I want to go back. So part of it was... A, they didn't talk to the tribes. B, it was called collision, which uh, you talk about in your story. But this inferred in some way that this was a a battle when in reality it was like 
a slaughter. A slaughter of a group of Native Americans. It was Arapaho and Cheyenne who were camped there under a flag, a white flag, because they thought they had the protection of the U.S. Army. And then also it was within the context of the museum itself seemed to lean more towards this Disneyfication and it just didn't feel appropriate. No. And you know they're trying to make, and certainly at the turn of this last century, museums desperate to get people in, especially history museums trying to make it living history. So you have all these interactive components. And sometimes it's just not appropriate. And certainly in this case, to put you in the shoes of people who are fleeing troops that were bent on massacring them, and you hear these sounds, it really wasn't reverential. Let's put it that way. And you mentioned that the tribes, some folks had reached out to you about this issue. Can you talk about how you came to this story? I've always been really interested in the Sand Creek Massacre, and part of it is the aftermath of it. So people don't learn, didn't learn about this in class. Certainly, I didn't. Indeed. No. And I can't remember when I first learned about it, but one of the things that was amazing, so Colonel Shivington, who was appointed, he had these volunteers that went with them, and they were called the Bloody Third because they hadn't actually had a battle. So they were mocked, and that was part of this, that they wanted, I guess they wanted to show that they were not the peace lovers that people had accused them of being. After they massacred, women, children, elderly, they took body parts and living children and paraded them to Denver. And in Denver, right around Christmas, they paraded these children on stage in like a circus, a show in, you know, brand new Denver. And there were scalps hanging from the stage. And I can't even remember where I heard this, but that kind of led to my obsession of how inhumane is this? And I started going to Sand Creek early on back in 2007 when the site was dedicated. Then I got really involved with the Sand Creek 150th Anniversary Commission and spent a lot of time talking to people, including then Governor Hickenlooper, about the problems at History Colorado. So some of the descendants had started talking to me for a story. So the museum was aware that the tribes were not happy to about this exhibit prior to the because this is not just an exhibit opening this is the museum is open right so they they're working on a lot of exhibits but one of the things is they did talk to some of the descendants because they had to get some information but five months i know before the museum opened the descendants are really you have to fix this this is a problem and they were ignored and the end result is was a huge shakeup at history colorado i mean the director went out they changed things they changed the board It's interesting to me because I was thinking about prior to this, like you're talking about the Colorado Historical Society was sort of what existed prior to History Colorado. And I don't remember it being that uh, it was kind of like an older, dusty museum with dioramas in it. So this was supposed And a timeline. Remember the timeline that went around it? (laughs) And, And this was supposed to be a new, fresh introduction to Colorado history with maybe these perspectives that we'd been missing for a long time. What was the museum's defense of sort of screwing this up so bad? Well, part of it was they, they'd hired this fabulous company that's supposed to make cutting-edge museums, and they'd paid attention, but they just didn't. And you have to remember that um, there are people who make museum exhibits, and then there are tribes that are dealing with 140, at the time, 140-year-old tragedy. Yeah. And the museum truly added insult to injury by just not listening to them. So what? Ha- so Collision opened this, this exhibit um, against the tribe's wishes. The tribes asked 
three different times, right, to have it closed. What? So how long was it? What, what sort of happened after it opened? So they continued to complain. And finally, probably 10 months after it opened, I ran my story about it. And then it was public because they had tried to work behind. I mean, that's the irony. They were being honorable. They were trying to the work behind work. the scenes, right, and not make a fuss. And it blew up after that public story and the state got involved because it's a state agency. It's part of the Department of Education. And ultimately, they did wind up closing it and then went into cons- consultations for a replacement at some point. And they they hosted Native Americans after the Sand Creek Healing Run, which always winds up at the Capitol at the, uh, every November. I think it's October this year. But they hosted, they tried to make amends, but then there was a complete change of management at the, at the History at the Colorado. Interesting. So one thing um, after the complaints were surfacing from the tribes about the the old exhibit, um, these letters resurfaced that told a complete more complete story of of what happened at Sand Creek. Can you talk about those letters? Actually, the letters surfaced when Congress was considering whether or not to create the site. Okay, in 2000. And that was because Ben Nighthorse Campbell. Native American in our senator, Native American in Congress, was pushing for it. And there were some doubters in the Senate that that there should be such a site, that we should ever commemorate a massacre, because you don't see a lot of national massacre sites. And so they're doubting it. And meanwhile, the proponents, tribes, historians, they find this cache of letters in a trunk in Evergreen that were written by Silas Sewell, who was in the Army, was with Shivington. He was supposed to you know, kind of keep an eye on him. He sees what's going on. He says he could not participate in it. He wrote his boss, General Weinkoop, about exactly what he'd seen, how horrible it was. Now, Silas Sewell was assassinated because of his position in 1865, but his letters remained. And in 2000, they show up and they could be introduced into Congress right as they're considering this legislation. It was incredible timing. And it was just like a documentation that was kind of needed to explain, you know, especially from this conscientious objector point of view, this is exactly what happened. I'm sure they had found some of the other congressional inquiries in 1864, but to find that, it was living history. These letters and were these incredible. And these were just in someone's... Attic in Evergreen. Wow. You never know. This episode is brought to you by Pine Melon, the farmer's market delivered. Pine Melon is a next-generation grocery delivery app that partners with over 200 farmers, ranchers, and producers in Colorado to help make fresh, locally sourced foods available to the Denver community at fair prices. Get high-quality meats, eggs, and dairy from small local farms, fresh-baked breads from local bakeries, and more, as well as all of your favorite pantry staples. Best part is, Pine Melon offers same-day delivery to Denver and soon Boulder within a two-hour window, no subscription necessary. Save time in your busy schedule and get fresh and healthy groceries delivered right to your door. Join the movement and support local today. Use promo code CityCastDenver for $75 off your first delivery at PineMelon.com. That's PineMelon.com. What do you think that this incident says about how I think uncomfortable a lot of Coloradans are with the uglier parts of our history. Well, the irony, of course, is that some of them never learned it. So it takes a long time. And in fact, the battlefield, which it was called the battlefield on the Civil War monument at the Capitol, 
they'd lost track of it. It wasn't until about 30 years ago that people actually found out where it had happened. It was at the time when they were also fighting to have it taken off that monument, listed as a battle of the Civil War, and deal with it as the massacre it was. And if you read my piece, you know, Congress decided it was a massacre in 1864 when there were plenty of other atrocities out there. They investigated Sand Creek, and the Army investigated, and they agreed it was a massacre. But in the decades since that, it's sort People of forgot. Got you know, then you get and... the noble pioneer line and it, you have the Civil War monument that was put out, I think, in 18, 1909 and toppled in 2020. I never knew that about that monument in particular. Um, but next month, History Colorado is opening a new Sand Creek exhibit. Finally, a decade later. Do you know what they're doing differently this time around? Certainly listening to the descendants. I think they're putting a lot more context in because people forget that the white settlers were not here first. They came to a populated land. And there were many different tribes. One tribe does not speak for another. In fact, there you know, there are two Cheyenne tribes. There are two Arapaho tribes because sure. after the Sand Creek Massacre, the, they fled. The survivors fled north to Wyoming and Montana and east to Oklahoma. So you've got the Oklahoma, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, the Cheyenne of Montana, and the Arapaho of Wyoming. So we'll hopefully be hearing from all of these folks through their own personal stories and experiences to inform what we're going to see as this new version of the telling of the Sand Creek Massacre. Well, the good news is I haven't heard from any of them really about problems. Okay. So I am guessing they are very happy with the direction it's going. Okay. And of course, now we have the Sand Creek Massacre monument that has just been doubled in size down in Eads. So you have the entire country is paying attention to this now. And sorry, were you saying earlier that the Sand Creek Massacre site was sort of lost oh, to time? Oh, it was time? lost. It was lost. They had wow. to have archaeologists and metal. They still go out with metal detectors to find out exactly where it happened. Some of it was on private land, so it had to be bought up. And you still have fights. We almost had an Excel power line going right over some of this land that is now going to be protected by the Department of the Interior. Um, is there anything that you are looking forward to or, or hoping to see in this new version of the Sand Creek Massacre uh, I don't want to say a memorial, but they're telling of it. I hope we see that one Native American does not speak for all, that there yeah. were many indigenous peoples. And I we still have that problem. We've got the naming issue right now with Mount Evans. And one group had the buy-in of one tribe. And they're like, well, we want to name it Mount Blue Sky, which is still one of the names that's up there. But other people don't like that. The Northern Cheyenne, that's a private secret name. So it's not supposed to be on the mountain. So we are not done with the controversies. I think the naming controversies regarding Evans are the next big fight. Okay. And I'm interested in those because that's sort of, to me, setting this tone that we're looking at. Um, you know, Secretary Deb Haaland expanded the Sand Creek Massacre uh, historic site, like you were saying. We're looking at changing Mount Evans. Um, the Department of Interior has also announced the changes of more than 600 geographical sites that had a derog that included the, a derogatory term for indigenous women in it. Do you think that we're talking differently about indigenous issues now than we were even just 10 years ago? Oh, of course we are. I mean, look at the land acknowledgments we are now hearing in front of every Denver City Council meeting, in front of every Colorado official state gathering. There is an acknowledgement that this was not our land originally. So do you see this as a move towards bigger systemic changes, just the name changes and, and these acknowledgements? Well, certainly recognizing history 
and educating people about history is done with the goal of not repeating that history unless it happens to be good history. And unfortunately, all all too often it isn't. So I do think it's helping. And History Colorado, if you look at what they've done the last few years, they've greatly expanded their voices, the voices they are hearing. And I think they're doing a good job with that. Although I know you still have to have some entertaining exhibits to get people in. Don't even get me started on the Denver A to Z exhibit. Um, They also are bringing in a lot of new voices, and it's great. I love that you pointed out that the Denver A to Z exhibit, Zebulon Pike is not the Z, it's zombies. Zombies, because zombies are such an important part of Colorado history. (laughs) Hey, to be fair, friend of the show, uh, Danny Newman did start the zombie crawl here in Denver. So maybe that's the... That's true. I'm trying to think if it happened after that exhibit went up, but you know, you have plenty of Z's that you yeah. could have gone with. Zebulon Pike is one of them or um, <laughs> the Zephyrs. The Zephyrs. <laughs> sure, sure. Patty Calhoun, thank you so much. My pleasure. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. President Biden is set to make a stop in Colorado today in advance of his planned dedication of Camp Hale as a National Historic Monument. According to CNN, the U.S. Army used the camp to train soldiers to fight in the mountains of Italy during World War II. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett tried for years to get the area situated north of Leadville protected through an act of Congress, while Congresswoman Lauren Boebert and other Republicans have opposed protections in favor of mining interests in the area. And an update to a story we brought you last month. In response to a county deputy shooting and killing Christian Glass in June, Clear Creek County has announced plans to create a crisis response team to serve the area. Glass was shot by police after he made a call to 911 himself asking for help. CPR reports that this comes more than two years after a grand jury recommended the creation of a mental health outreach team after the trial of another man who was shot and killed by Clear Creek County police. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell former Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later. my son stains our couch enough that we can finally get rid of it because it's gorgeous and it's very uncomfortable. And Greg is constantly cleaning it with club soda because the baby's always getting something on it because it's not for children. It's a decorative couch. It's a gorgeous decorative couch that doesn't belong in a home with a 18-month-old. Yeah.